Welcome to Eat, Drink, Innovate, the podcast about food startups, innovators and entrepreneurs who are making their mark in Australia's dynamic food and beverage industry. The future of food is happening here. Come join Susie White at the table to eat, drink and innovate. Aha! Hi everyone, I'm Susie White, a product innovation coach, author and podcaster in the food and beverage industry from Melbourne, Australia. Today, I'm talking with George Gekas. He's the CEO and co-founder of Bedalia, a Melbourne-based food and beverage catalyst that specialises in scaling up food startups into national and global markets. Bedalia provides individuals and small companies with mentors and a team of professional experts to guide them through the next stage of scaling up their validated business in the shortest time possible with the least amount of capital. In this episode, you'll learn when is the right time to think about scaling up your food and beverage business, how to find a suitable co-manufacturer, and some critical ways of working that you'd be wise to consider in any co-manufacturing agreement. And in the aftertaste section, I'll summarise the three key lessons that could help you to work more effectively with a co-manufacturer. So welcome to the podcast today, George. Uh, Susie, thanks for having me. Ah, it's great to be chatting with you. Let's set the scene first with the listeners. It's always helpful if maybe you tell us a little bit about what your role is and what your business, Bedalia, actually does. So my company, Bedalia, I'm the co-founder and the CEO of uh, the business. So we basically help companies scale up. We noticed that there was a gap in the market for companies where they go through what we call the death zone. And it's, um, it's the stage of your business where you probably, you've probably been selling in farmers markets or some smaller retails and you want to start going national or you want to start going international. And that scale up process is quite challenging. So I built a business around helping those entrepreneurs and small companies take their business up to another level. And it's basically by providing a team of experts around that company and uh, scaling them up. So that's what the Dahlia is all about. That scaling up phase is a really difficult one to do alone. And one of the the topics that comes up a lot when I talk with food entrepreneurs or food founders is how do I scale up and, as you say, get out of my own kitchen or a hired commercial kitchen and really start working with a manufacturer so I can make my product at larger scales and, and take that step up and get into more distribution like a retail grocery store, for example. What's the right time for a startup to start thinking about that and working with a manufacturer? There's a couple of ways of knowing when you're ready to scale up. So the first one is product validation. And when I talk about product validation, what I mean is you need to know that you're actually solving a solution for the consumer. So if you're getting repeat purchase from the consumers, you know you've got a product uh, where there is a demand. That's one thing. The other thing is if you're spending, if you're starting to spend too much time in your own kitchen or in a commercial kitchen and you haven't got enough time on growing your business, either spending more time in sales or marketing, that's when you know you need to start getting it contract manufactured or getting some assistance somehow. Firstly, people need to know that there's going to be orders coming in. You don't recommend this then for people saying, I've got a great idea. Let's go straight to a contract manufacturer. And then secondly, 
they've been operating in farmers markets or they've been selling online there is supply and demand but they just can't handle the sheer volume of the product they have to make themselves great so if we know that's the right point they should start thinking about this outsourcing how would you go about finding a contract manufacturer and what sort of things should they be looking for it's not easy and that's why it's a service that i provide to find a contract manufacturer but Sometimes uh, manufacturers would advertise online that they co-pack, that they that they contract manufacture. So you can just start uh, searching. One way to start is looking for products on on the shelf where they've got the same packaging or a similar product to what yours is, or it's got the similar process. When, once you start looking online, if you can find some manufacturers that are advertising as contract manufacturing specialists, that's probably a quite a good option. Otherwise, you will be looking at some uh, manufacturers that have got some spare capacity. Uh, so they do their own branded products and they may have some spare capacity. So they could also be advertising for contract manufacturing. So you just need to start searching. Packaging supplies is another option as well. If you've got a, a particular package, um, and there is a supplier that sells that package. You can have a word to them and say, do you know I can get my products contract manufactured? So those are all the things I could type into Google and start looking at. And I, I know you mentioned then also packaging suppliers. It seems that once you're in that world, it seems to be quite a small industry in terms of every every supplier seems to know every other supplier. <laughs> is it a good idea if, for example, you found a packaging supplier they tend to work with a certain co- contract manufacturer who also works with an ingredient supplier. Do you find they end up linking together and that could be a way also to find someone to help you? Absolutely. Generally, you know, people do try and help each other and it, it is a relatively small industry. So I think it's just a matter of asking the right people, asking the right questions. It's not easy because the challenge is, a lot of these contract manufacturers, they get many, many inquiries and they get a lot of you know, tie kickers, as we know. Um, so they may be a little bit hesitant to take on every inquiry. They might be too busy to take on every inquiry, but it's a relatively good place to start. And let's talk about these tire kickers. These are people who are just rocking up saying, give me a price for, could you make this for me? With very little understanding of what's involved or are they a suitable client at that point? Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's what helps uh, me get some cut through because I know quite a lot of manufacturers and if I go to them, the manufacturer will know that I've taken the inquiry and I've validated the inquiry that it's going to be quite a reasonable project or it's, it's worth them um, looking at the project or spending time on quoting for the business. So what I recommend is I think it's probably important that um, that you do, you do go in with a brief to a contract manufacturer. So all the details, all the information is there in front of them and they can quite easily say that they can do it or they cannot do it or they have enough of the information to provide a quotation or or take the inquiry forward. Let's talk about this because this is really important. How do you get a contract manufacturer to understand what you're asking for, speaking their language, and how do you get them to take you seriously? Obviously, put together this brief. Who would I give this brief to, or who would be the first point of contact if I was to literally say, "Great, I found a contract manufacturer; they can make muesli bars." Who would I be speaking to? You would send through the inquiry. So, if you haven't got a contact within the business, send through just a general inquiry, and they will move you forward to the appropriate person. And it varies with each different company. So sometimes it is the operations manager, it might be 
the sales account manager, it might be the owner of the business. It depends on on the actual size of the business. But as soon as they give you the the right contact person, well, you know, you're speaking you're speaking to the right person for that particular company. And now let's talk about what should be in this brief. Because I work in product innovation, I've had a few interesting conversations with contract manufacturers and I found myself often in this weird catch-22 situation where I say, what's your minimum order quantity? And they say, how much do you want to produce and what are your volume forecasts? How do we get out of that loop and what sort of information should be in this initial brief, George? So if you're at the stage that you want to scale up, there's a reason for it. If you are um, spending too much time in the commercial kitchen and you're making a certain volume, if you're very confident that if you spend more time outside of making the product and instead just selling the product, you're, gonna, you're going to gain more volume, or you may have just pitched to a customer and you know that particular retailer may have a certain number of stores and you can estimate what sort of volume you may require. You have to start off with that point. I think it's important to to be honest with yourself and the business and understand how much product do you need to manufacture? What is the shelf life of the product and how much can you warehouse? What sort of ordering cycles do you want to start doing? So if it's over a 12-month period, then um, the contract manufacturer might, might start thinking about, well, I can... I can make this product once a month or once every two months or once every three months, uh, depending on the shelf life of the product, of course. And then you start getting into some other questions within within yourself and the business on, can I fund this? Can I fund three months worth of products? So that's how you start getting close towards what sort of volumes do I require and is this the right contract manufacturer? All right. So a volume forecast is essential. You can actually talk about, I know a volume forecast, I've got a serious period of time. This is probably a year's worth, or let me tell you what I would need in a year so they can come back with how often they should run that. Okay. What about actually knowing the type of product? Should it be that you're coming with very developed finished formulas? I mean, assuming you've been making these in your kitchen or a commercial kitchen up until then, you'd have some pretty established recipes and you'd know what your raw materials are. But I'm imagining also your raw material suppliers, you might have to change those because again, you're ramping up your volumes. Those people might not be able to supply on that scale anymore. What's the role of the contract manufacturer in terms of sort of recipe scale up and raw material supply? Yeah, good question. What you have to remember is the, the contract manufacturer likes the least amount of disruption. So they're making a product and they want to gain the, the most amount of efficiencies um, out of making your product. So the more difficult it is for them, the more expensive it's going to be for you. So within a formula, there may be some common ingredients. So if we look at uh, a muesli bar and there's um, oats within the formulation, the contract manufacturer might, may prefer to use their own oats because that's a common ingredient. So if there's no if there's no different difference in specifications or very similar specifications between uh, the two products, it may be worthwhile they use their own oats. Um, or if it's a soft drink, for example, you're unlikely to be ordering your own sugar, so you'll use the contract manufacturer's sugar. So you can give them um, a formula. You wouldn't want to give them anything too confidential, so you'd give them um, enough information where they can quote the business. Sometimes contract manufacturers do some development work for you as well. So some of them do provide that service, which you would be paying for. 
Um, you'd want to have a good think about the IP as well. So if a contract manufacturer develops a product for you, creates the formulation, it's quite challenging then to own that IP if someone else develops the product and makes that formula. Ah, okay. And with IP, we're talking about the intellectual property and the ownership of that recipe, your secret sauce, whatever your herbs and spices or whatever it is. So yeah, let's talk about that. How you do you protect yourself? Because you are going to someone who's already making muesli bars. That's the whole point. They've got that capability and they know how to do it. They're probably running their own brand or their private label and making other brands. How much can you protect yourself in that? Can you get them to sign exclusivity forms and say, well, don't take on any other clients who are like this? Or is there any courses like that available? Well, yeah, look, you can't ask that if you're ordering about a billion products from them. So <laughs> <laughs> it's really challenging. And you, um, you need to have a really good think about how unique is your product. So let me give you the example of, um, of Coca-Cola. So uh, Coca-Cola is manufactured in you know, hundreds of countries around the world. No one really knows the true formulation of Coke. No one can really match Coke. They're getting quite close now, like flavor companies are getting a lot closer to it. Now, the reason why they're able to hold on to that, that IP and that special formula is because the contract manufacturer or the franchise partner, they literally receive two portions. They receive a bucket of, or a pail of, um, of A and a pail of B, and they mix it with sugar, they mix it with water, and they put gas in it. That's all I know. So there's ways of holding on to those secret herbs of spices if your product has some secret herbs and spices in there, right? And that's, that's the, the, the unique formulation. If you're making a muesli bar and there's nothing too unique about that muesli bar apart from flavour combinations, there may not be a lot of IIP in that product anyway. So if someone is able to work out your formulation from the ingredient list, there's not a lot of IP within there. So there's not a lot to protect anyway. And that's one of the reasons why I always say to my clients, make sure that you heavily invest in your brand and your trademark because it's a lot more difficult to copy a brand and trademark in some instances as opposed to the actual product and recipe itself. That is great advice. So we touched on then, George, about the sort of services that a contract manufacturer or co-packer could offer. We talked on that, that, yes, they might help you with the raw material supply. You can get some synergies by leveraging theirs. What about things like the inventory holding or um, the storage? Is that something that they would also normally offer if you didn't have your own warehouse, for example? Yes, not always. It always um, it's going to depend on the manufacturer and the size of their location and warehouse space. But what they may have is a solution for you. They say they may better find some um, some offsite warehousing, some uh, some third party warehousing for you. So it is going to depend on the manufacturer and the size of their warehousing. In any event, they they will probably start charging you for warehousing if your if your stock is going to be staying there for for too long. And now let's say you find someone, you've given them the brief, they say, yes, we can do those volumes. What other questions should you be asking to find out if they're the right contract manufacturer for you at that stage? I like to understand where 
contract manufacturing sits within their business. So, like I mentioned earlier, sometimes manufacturers are set up purely for contract manufacturing. They don't have their own brands, so there's no real conflict of interest. So that may be a contract manufacturer that will help drive some innovation for you, which is great to have a partner like that. Sometimes uh, a manufacturer just may have some spare capacity within their business. They might be manufacturing their own brands. So there's a potential conflict of interest if there's some similar products there or they for whatever reason they may not they may not be your innovation partner they may not be forthcoming in driving innovation for you i think it's just very important to understand where your business sits within their business it would be good to know if they do contract manufacturing for any other companies do they contract manufacture for blue chip companies do they contract manufacture for the um, the major retailers and there's a couple of reasons why you'd want to know that a is understanding their accreditation if they are manufacturing from larger companies or for the retailers, you know that they will be audited frequently and they will have high levels of um, quality accreditation. But also, it's probably important to know what size of business are you going to be to their company. So just, just so you can start putting things in perspective and, and, and understand how important or um, how relevant your, your business is going to be to that company. It's time for a quick break now to thank our sponsor. When we come back, you'll hear from George Gekas at Badalia how best to engage and work effectively with a co-manufacturer once you've found the right one. I'd like to say a quick thanks to today's sponsor who helped make this podcast possible, the Monash Food Innovation Centre. They can help you fast track and de-risk your new products in the Australian market or export markets like China. Did you know that only 1 in 10 food and beverage products survive the first year of launch? That means 9 out of 10 fail. If you'd like to be one of those businesses that gets it right, then the Monash Food Innovation Centre can help. It has cutting-edge technologies, product development services, and runs capability workshops to upskill business owners and employees in the art and science of food innovation. Whether you're a food startup or a large corporation, check them out at www.foodinnovationcenter.com and see how they can help grow your business through innovation. Welcome back. We've heard from George Gekas at Badalia about the right time to start thinking about scaling up your food and beverage business and working with a co-manufacturer to get you out of the kitchen. And so I asked George... Once you've found an ideal manufacturing supplier, what's the next series of steps in working together? Typically, the process is confirming up, yep, this all looks quite fine. You might be doing some lab trials because you may be using some of their ingredients. You want to make sure that there's an interpretation of the formulation. That's all correct. You do a lab trial, then you may do a production trial as well. So just to make sure that, um, yes, once we've, once we've scaled up from lab into the factory, it's all still working okay. There may be a charge for that. And then you, then you move forward with um, an, an official engagement letter, and that could be in a contract. But you need to know um, the ways of working and just so it's very clear on what the expectations are from, from both parties. 
and that needs to be in writing and you're much better to have a contract. What sort of thing would I expect to be in that in that contract, George, apart from obviously the volumes and the commitment to that and the pricing? What else would be in there? Who's going to be supplying the packaging if you want samples um, from each production run, if you want a positive release system going out so the product doesn't get released until you taste each batch or if you receive the quality control results and the testing from each particular batch that was used and understanding if you're allowed to to go into the factory during the trial. Some some manufacturers are hesitant on um, allowing people to go through their factories at uh, at any particular point in time. So there, there's some of the things that you may want to clarify and understanding what the volume is going to be and understanding that you're going to remove the product from their warehouse at a certain stage, um, payment terms. You also be looking at what sort of wastage allowance that you're going to have. So if you're purchasing packaging or you're purchasing ingredients and you're delivering it to that factory, um, and there's an, there's an error or there's a problem that happens within the manufacturing process and they have to dispose of or dump a certain amount of products or who's going to be paying for that? Is there a wastage factor allowed? So there's, there's, a, there's quite a few different things that you'd, you'd want to have included in that, um, in that agreement. And you touched then about the, the lab trial samples and the sample production runs. When you're doing something like a sample production run, I think what I have heard from from other food businesses is that's also a time when you really get an understanding of the co- contract manufacturer saying, well, we know you wanted this in a box, but to be honest, our line runs on flow wrap and we don't want to swap over the line and we don't want to shut it down or we don't want to wash out the line because of one unique ingredient you have. How much is it a, a process of give and take when you're working initially with your contract manufacturer to sort of what your vision is for your product and the packaging versus what they're willing to do in terms of their production line? Yeah, good question. You always need to understand what your not negotiables are, where it's not worth changing your product to get a contract manufacturer. So if your unique point of difference for your particular product is a unique shape bottle that's made of glass, for example. And that's, what, uh, that's why you're getting repeat purchase. That's what the consumers love about your product. And that's what differentiates you from all the other products on the shelf. And that's why you're getting off tape. So if you go into a contract manufacturer and I say, well, you know, that glass bottle, we don't like to run glass. So we're going to run it in a plastic bottle. And uh, we're already doing some other similar products. So we'll just run it down the line in the same way. Well, that's when you're going to say, well, no, it's, it's not use. It's no use me doing that because I'm just going to lose my total proposition. And it's important to know what your not negotiables are. So I've been in some situations uh, with clients where they've had to change a, um, a particular ingredient and because of accreditation in there, we changed the formula. So we went from a um, pork-based um, ingredient um, to a different ingredient. Now, they were a little bit nervous. The client was a little bit nervous initially when, when we started talking about that change, but um, it didn't have any effect on the flavor profile of the product. And what uh, they realized, once we made that change, it did open up sales in other channels that they couldn't have previously. So it's important to be open to change, but it's important to know is what is your not negotiables with your product, both in from an ingredients perspective and from a packaging perspective. 
And let's talk about there's sort of a boom at the moment in all the products around dairy-free, gluten-free, allergen-free, vegan-friendly. If I'm looking for a contract manufacturer in in those areas, particularly the allergen-free, what difficulties might I come up against, George? Because that seems to be a harder ask. Yes, it is quite challenging. And it goes it goes from both sides as well. So if you've got a product, um, you want to make the claim nuts-free, for example, that's quite difficult to have from a control perspective. So if, if your expectation is that that manufacturer, although they make um, other products with nuts in there, they're going to make sure that they've got an absolute clean line and be able to make the claim on your product. That's you know that, that's extremely difficult to do. So that's going to um, give you less options to manufacture your product. And it even goes the other way. So if you've got some um, some nuts in your product and you found one manufacturer, but they make um, nut-free claims on all of their on all their products and their contract manufactured products, well, they're not going to introduce your um, product because of the allergen. Um, concerns in there. So it does get more challenging when you've got a lot more claims on your on your particular product. And I think sometimes you don't appreciate the restrictions around those sort of claims and those environments of manufacture. I, I had at one stage thought, well, just run it down line one and keep line two and line three for the nuts. And they're like, no, 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 no. That's called cross-contamination. <laughs> you can't have one nut in this entire sealed building. It's hard. It's, it's not easy to find the right contract manufacturer for your particular product. If you all had millions of dollars, you know, you would build your own facility and have total control over your business, but uh, obviously it's not always economically viable to do that. I do know some businesses who have done that, who have said, well, we looked at the co-manufacturers, it didn't exist or we weren't happy with the standard that they could produce. We'll just go start up our own small factory or our own small manufacturing plant. I mean, for you, George, when would you ever advise that to be a good step for a client? I'd advise that, and I have advised that, when it's not a big barrier to entry, when it's not extremely expensive to, to invest in the equipment to use to make your product. If it's not that much money and there's, there's space available and you can make it work, there's different funding arrangements from state government, from federal government that will assist you to, um, to build a facility, that's when it's worthwhile to do. And if you've got the expertise as well in-house to, um, to make the product, if you've got that and it doesn't cost that much money to do it or you can buy secondhand equipment, go ahead and do it. You always have to think about what um, your capabilities what is your cash flow and where are you better off spending your money? Are you better off spending money in some equipment so you've got total control of your supply chain or are you better off on spending that money on a marketing campaign or a promotional activity or other areas of your business? So it's always understanding on what's the priority for your business and um, what's the best way to spend your money. And we were touching on that if you can't find someone locally here in Australia or New Zealand. What's your thoughts about using an overseas manufacturer? I always try and go local, mainly because I like to visit the factory whenever I can. It's obviously a little bit more challenging overseas. 
So if you can if you can do something local, if you can build a relationship with the contract manufacturer, this is a really important relationship. Think about how important it is to have a good relationship with the factory that makes your product. It's extreme, it's extremely important. So if you've got the ability to visit them when you can, to go out and see them when there's uh, any concerns or questions, to go and see how the product's looking, do that. The only time you would go or recommend to go overseas is if you cannot find it locally or if getting it manufactured locally does not make it cost effective. That's when you would start looking uh, at overseas. But you, you have to weigh up um, all the other variables with getting something manufactured overseas. So, so obviously the freight and um, product coming through, customs, etc. That puts another variable in um, in your total supply chain. And as you say, and the fact that Australia has such a beautiful reputation for clean and green ingredients and supply that um, a lot of local consumers want it to be made in Australia. They want to support local brands. Absolutely. Well, the big thing is local uh, consumers want it, but, but uh, more importantly, overseas consumers want it as well. So, so the, biggest, um, you know, the biggest area for growth is if you start exporting. So having um, the Australian-made product within the product proposition, yes, you are better to have it manufactured here in Australia. So where could people find out a little bit more about you and Bedalia if they do feel like they need some help and this is an area they're really interested in stepping into? So they can um, look me up online. So Bedalia website, bedalia.com. I'm on LinkedIn. So there's plenty of different uh, different ways that they, that they can contact me. There's various clients that do contact me for assistance in this area, it's um, it's not only people that are coming out of commercial kitchens. It's also large uh, manufacturers that uh, would rather validate their idea through a contract manufacturer before they decide to um, invest in machinery in their own equipment. So it's it's not easy. I always give the example of it's like trying to build a house. So you can build a house. You can contact the plumber, electrician, the car, the carpenter, the cabinet maker, the tiler. You can run that yourself, or you can get a builder to do it for you. And it doesn't mean that um, you're not going to have issues. There's always things that don't go 100% right. But you know, if you get someone to help you, you'll be discussing your issues and concerns uh, and get things changed instead of talking to uh, various different people. And I will definitely put that website address in the show notes link. So if anyone wants to uh, go chat to George and find out how they can work with a contract manufacturer or upscale their business overall, you can go to his website and get in touch with him there. Well, this has been terrific today. Thank you so much, George. I have learned a lot about contract manufacturing and I'm sure the listeners have found this very helpful for their businesses. So thanks so much for, for joining us today. Fantastic. Thanks for having me. Aftertaste, the sweet taste of success. Thanks for sticking around. This is the part of the podcast when I think back on my chat with George Gekas from Bedalia and reflect on when it comes to working with a co-manufacturer, what have we learned? Well, I took away three key lessons. One, make sure you're ready for this stage of scaling up. Have a proven product. 
existing and market sales and clear production volume requirements in terms of units and frequency before you approach a co-manufacturer. This will increase the likelihood that the co-manufacturers you approach will take you seriously versus all those tire kickers out there. And they'll be able to tell you very quickly whether they can help you or not. Lesson number two, do as much homework on a co-manufacturer as you can once the door is open to determine how will your business fit with theirs. Will your production volumes be important to them or an annoyance? Will they respect your recipe and packaging choices or push for changes that fit with their capabilities? Will they help you develop new products in the future, source raw ingredients or hold inventory stock for you? And do they have any conflicts of interest with other clients or maybe even with their own brands? Because building a relationship that benefits both parties is going to be a really critical element to your future success. Lesson number three, before you reveal your own secret herbs and spices to a co-manufacturer, think about whether you might have some intellectual property that's worth protecting. That might be a recipe or ingredient that you'd like to keep to yourself. If so, just be prepared that you might need to mix, prepare and supply some part of your recipe to the co-manufacturer to protect your intellectual property. On the other hand, if there's not that much that's unique in your recipe or product to protect, then plan to spend your investment in building a unique and ownable brand position with a loyal customer base so that you have a competitive advantage beyond your product recipe. Well, that's it for this episode. Many thanks again to my guest today, George Gekas from Badalia, for sharing his expertise about co-manufacturing with us. If you are interested in scaling up your business and leveraging co-manufacturing, I'll put the links to the Badalia website in this podcast episode show notes so you can get in touch with George. And I'd love to hear from you on this topic. Have you successfully shifted your product supply to a co-manufacturer? What's worked well for you or what hasn't? You can give me a call on the Eat, Drink, Innovate podcast hotline. It's 613-88-444-823 and leave me a message. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please be sure to tell a friend or colleague and join me next time to eat, drink and innovate. Do you have any suggestions about successful food or beverage entrepreneurs and innovators in Australia that you think Susie should be talking to? You can get in touch with her at eatdrinkinnovate.com.au forward slash podcast and find all the show note links and innovation resources there too. And if you like this podcast, please help others discover it by leaving a review on Apple Podcast, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts from. 